0: The following presentation is brought to you by The Realm Network. Buzz Burbank. News and comment. I mean, seriously, where do we start? It's Thursday, March 15th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors, including Hello Pillow and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Another historic four years past this week in terms of news about our government and our world, and we'll get to all of it very quickly. But it's important to remember where the latest Whirlwind Week began, because it may give us some clues about the events that immediately followed. The President of the United States denies he had sex with a porn star, who says he did. And Donald Trump's lawyer denies that the money paid to the porn star was to keep her from talking about that affair the one she says they had a year and a half after Trump married his third wife. Trump and the White House have insisted there is no connection between Trump and Stormy Daniels, but late last week, White House spokesman Sarah Sanders appeared to have slipped up. She told reporters that Trump had already won a case against Daniels in arbitration court over that alleged non-disparagement agreement. That court session was held in secret after Daniels sued Trump, claiming the agreement was null and void because Trump never signed it, not even using his legal alias, David Dennison. Daniels is not asking for money. She's asking the court to throw out the agreement so she can set the record straight. And she's already taped an interview with 60 Minutes for when that day comes. But for the first time from either Trump or the White House, Sarah Huckabee Sanders had admitted there is a connection between the president and the porn star. Trump was reportedly very unhappy with Sanders, who'd only aggravated the wound already inflicted by the scandal itself, a scandal that's more about money than sex or infidelity. On Friday, Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, tried to be more specific in his answer about the source of the money for that $130,000 paid to Stormy Daniels. He says he transferred the money using the equity on his house and funneled it through his LLC, presumably to claim it as a business deduction. The email notifying Daniel's lawyer the money had been transferred came from a Trump organization address. Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, is at the center of the stormy Daniels mess and a known target of the Mueller investigation. Cohen refers to, quote, these incessant attacks, meritless, and like his client, he blames the media. Cohen insists the money came out of his own pocket through that home equity line of credit. But now, CNN's gotten hold of documents showing that a second lawyer with the Trump organization was involved in the Daniels' hush money payment. That second attorney is Jill Martin, who's based in California and representing a company set up by Cohen just weeks before the election, apparently for the sole purpose of slipping 130 grand to Stormy Daniels. The Washington Post says Ms. Martin filed secret legal documents to keep Ms. Daniels from talking in that arbitration that Sarah Sanders accidentally revealed to reporters. This belies Cohen's claim that the Trump Organization was not party to the transaction. Reporters and investigators have been following the money since it appears to amount to an illegal unreported campaign donation, real money paid to insulate a political candidate from harm, allowing that candidacy to succeed. So who paid it is important. From our interesting coincidences department, five days after Michael Cohen paid Stormy Daniels that 130 thou. The Trump Organization billed the Trump campaign $129,999.72. That's just 28 cents short of what Cohen had paid Daniels on that same day from his Trump Organization email address. A complaint has been filed with the Federal Election Commission as it becomes even more important to know the source of that money. Michael Cohen says he was never reimbursed by the Trump Organization nor the Trump campaign, As with the Russia probe, the Stormy Daniels mass has also become a question of what the president knew. Whatever the source of the money, Stormy Daniels has upped the ante. Through her lawyer, she's offered to repay every penny of that $130,000 in hush money by tomorrow. All Trump and his lawyers have to do to collect it is tell the Daniels team what account should get that money. And on Trump, Russia, and women, those three subjects intersected at the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. It was in June of that year that Trump tweeted, do you think Putin will be going to the Miss Universe pageant in November in Moscow? If so, will he become my new best friend? And through the Washington Post, we now know that Trump had sent Putin a typewritten, personally signed letter inviting Putin to attend. In his own handwriting, at the bottom of the letter, Trump added that he was looking forward to seeing the beautiful women. On his visit to Moscow. At the time, Trump was also looking to expand his business interests in Russia. He'd been trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow since the 1980s. Putin never posted at the pageant, but he did send Trump a traditional Russian gift, a lacquered box. During his time in Moscow for that pageant, Trump told reporters Putin was following the pageant and Trump's handling of it. I do have a relationship, bragged Trump, and I can tell you he's very interested in what we're doing here today. Indeed, Trump and Putin would later sing each other's praises in public. Trump would publicly invite Putin to hack Hillary Clinton's emails, and Russia would offer help to the Trump campaign. During that campaign, Trump told a reporter, I have nothing to do with Russia. Nothing to do. I never met Putin. I have nothing to do with Russia whatsoever. It was Trump lawyer Ty Cobb who kept Trump cool when Trump wanted to publicly attack special counsel Robert Mueller. Cobb reportedly accomplished this by telling Trump the investigation would wrap up by Thanksgiving and then Christmas and then New Year's. It was Ty Cobb who's advised the president to cooperate with the handling over of documents to the Mueller probe. But lately, Trump's reportedly asked friends if he should change lawyers. And now comes a New York Times report that Trump's in talks with a lawyer who defended Bill Clinton against impeachment. It would be the job of Emmett Flood, to help Trump deal with the Justice Department in the course of its investigation. Ty Cobb's job, says the report, might not be affected. Or it might. And we don't know what this means for Trump lawyers John Dowd and Jay Sekulow, who are more blustery and less qualified than Emmett Flood. After months of being told the Mueller investigation was wrapping up, Trump is now trying to hire an impeachment lawyer. In the meantime, Trump's current attorneys are trying to negotiate with Mueller that face-to-face sit-down interview on the conditions that the investigation be completed within 60 days after that. Prosecutors say Mueller would never agree to such terms, and that he's also unlikely to agree to narrow the questions to a specific topic, as has also been requested by Team Trump. Mueller is in no hurry to sew up his cases. Bloomberg reports that Mueller's practically finished his obstruction of justice investigation, but that he may delay its actual conclusion. All that seems to remain in that obstruction probe are interviews with Trump and his son Don Jr., his daughter Ivanka, and his bodyguard Keith Schiller, who accompanied Trump in Moscow in 2013. But the Bloomberg report says Mueller may be looking to bring along other parts of the investigation, including collusion, before tying the whole thing together. Mueller's already indicted over a dozen Russians and more than a handful of Trump associates, several of whom have flipped to become witnesses for the prosecution. Mueller and his 17 prosecutors have already collected and examined nearly one and a half million pages of documents and a pile of electronic devices. But there was no collusion, according to the House Republicans who were supposed to have investigated that, without even notifying the other members of the House Intelligence Committee, much less let them vote on it the committee's Republican majority agreed to end its investigation. It also declared that while there appears to have been Russian interference, there was no collusion involving the Trump campaign, or at least no evidence of that. And they had already written their 150-page report when they announced that conclusion, again, without input from Democrats on the committee and without bothering to collect key evidence or hear from key witnesses. They did not bother to investigate whether Trump had tried to obstruct justice by firing James Comey over the Russia probe. House Republicans also disregarded the findings of the U.S. intelligence community, which said the Russians had shifted at one point from simple interference to favoring Trump over Clinton. It should have been clear from the start that this is where the Republican led investigation would lead, especially since it was arguably run by Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes. Who'd already embarrassed himself trying to prove an untrue claim by Trump that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. And so, once this new Republican report was out, a celebratory Trump tweeted about the committee's no collusion finding, in all caps, of course. The Republicans in Congress had told him exactly what he wanted to hear. It emboldened Trump for a lot of what followed in this week packed with four years of news. Democrats have responded to that Republican conclusion just as they had after the biased memo aimed at discrediting U.S. intelligence. They've issued what they call a status report, a 21-page document that outlines the work Republicans left undone. Without a majority and without subpoena power, House Democrats say they will continue investigating. But the Democratic response leaves clues as to where their rogue investigation is headed. Their response says there's good reason to believe the White House has tapes or other documentation of the conversations that Trump had with Comey, the ones in which Trump allegedly pressured Comey to stop the FBI investigation. The conversations that led Comey to declare, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. This Democratic posse says it will continue to look into what it calls credible allegations about whether Russians use Trump's businesses to launder money. Quoting lead Democrat Adam Schiff, the American people need to know whether the Russians still have something they can hold over the president's head. The Democrats say they have testimony and documents to show that the Trump organization continued to try to build that Trump Tower in Moscow, that one that Trump has wanted since the 1980s, while the campaign was underway. Officially, though, the only House investigation into Trump Russia is over, at least for now. The House investigation could come back from the dead if control of the House flips in this year's midterm elections. Congressman Adam Schiff says history will judge these Republicans harshly. That history may already be written. More about that shortly. The Senate Intelligence Committee, in the meantime, continues its investigation, as does Robert Mueller. If there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, Trump would have known about it. That's what White House spokesman Raj Shah declared on Sunday. Raj and Trump may come to regret he said that because although Trump and his people say there was no collusion, if it's ever proven someone in the Trump campaign did collude, Trump's likelihood of knowledge is already on record. A spokesman for the Trump organization has now ruled out the possibility that Trump would be out of the loop for a thing like that. And while no court would allow retroactive proof, the statement that Trump would have known will likely haunt both Trump and his spokesman. And a little update on Sam Nunberg, the former Trump aide who launched a bizarre tour of cable news shows last week, refusing to cooperate with the Mueller investigation, calling it a witch hunt. By the end of that very odd day, Nunberg backed down, saying he would cooperate and that he would seek alcohol treatment. And cooperate he did, testifying for five and a half hours for a Mueller grand jury. Nunberg says he now believes the investigation is warranted, quoting him, because there's a lot there and that's the sad truth. Nunberg says he still doesn't think the quest leads to Trump himself, but Nunberg is worried about what's to become of his mentor, Roger Stone. He won't talk about what he said to the Mueller grand jury. Nunberg says he'd, quote, already gotten into enough trouble this week. According to a friend of Nunberg's, he's scheduled to return for grand jury testimony five more times. The attempted murder of a former Russian double agent tied to a company that hired Christopher Steele has gotten the attention of Great Britain, NATO, and the international law enforcement community. Sergei Skripal and his adult daughter were found unconscious on a park bench in the quiet community where they'd settled after being granted asylum in Britain. They'd both been poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent, a weapon specifically developed by Russia and only Russia. And while their conditions have been upgraded from critical to stable, the nerve agent contaminated the area, especially a diner where Skripal and his daughter had just dined. Brits, who were also there that day, have since been urged to wash the clothing they wore and any possessions they may have had with them. A policeman wound up in the hospital because of that contact. British Prime Minister Theresa May blamed the attack on Russians and gave Russia till midnight Tuesday to provide a credible answer. When Moscow responded with disrespect and defiance, Prime Minister May kicked nearly two dozen Russian diplomats out of the U.K., accusing them of espionage. That's the biggest expulsion of Russian diplomats by Britain since the Cold War. May revoked an invitation to Russia's foreign minister for what would have been an upcoming visit, and she cut off high-level contact between the United Kingdom and Russia. And the British are also likely to add even more economic sanctions against Russia. Quoting Britain's foreign minister, it's clear we've got the Russia government behaving aggressively toward people in the UK. Increasingly, I think, he says, we need to classify them as acts of war. British foreign minister Boris Johnson says his country is, however, encouraged by the support it's getting from its allies. Yeah, about that. All for one and one for all is essentially the basis for NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's Article 5 in the Charter that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all. And there are perhaps no two greater allies inside NATO as Britain and the United States. So about that. Its close ally, the U.S., had just fired its Secretary of State. White House spokesman Sarah Sanders would not place blame on Monday, saying, we're still working through some of the details. Trump on Tuesday said, if we get the facts straight and we agree with them, we will condemn Russia or whoever it might be, whoever it might be. Trump had taken no action against the Russian attack on the U.S. Why would he respond to an attack in Britain? Our allies and our adversaries were stunned at how weak the U.S. appears to have become. Now there have been sharp, targeted condemnations from both our U.N. ambassador and finally, also from the White House. Trump, meanwhile, remained silent on Russia. No tweets about that. You don't have to move a mountain very far. Just moving the mountain a little is a major accomplishment. Last week, we learned that the young people behind the movement for safer schools and tougher gun laws had moved a mountain, prompting action from a Florida legislature that had refused to act for decades. The students did not accomplish all they'd set out to do in Florida, but they accomplished more than the grown-ups expected. And they're not through trying. Saturday in Coral Springs, Florida, about 100 people, students from Stoneman Douglas High and their parents and supporters, gathered in a park in the rain to honor the 17 people killed in their school a month ago. They once again read the list of victims' names and once again slammed politicians for not doing more. Quoting 18-year-old senior Angelina Lazo, They might not take us seriously, but we know more about our Constitution and our amendments than those currently in office. She praised the companies that have stopped dealing with the NRA and imposing age limits on gun buyers on their own. Quoting a history teacher at Stoneman Douglas, this movement is not going to die. It's spreading like wildfire. The proof of that statement became crystal clear yesterday. Hundreds of thousands of students at thousands of schools across America walked out of their classes to march for safety in both schools and gun laws, or at least to remember the 17 who died in Florida exactly one month ago on that date. In Washington, D.C., students gathered on Capitol Hill to chant, Enough is enough, and, Hey, NRA, how many kids have you killed today? There were die-ins and voter registration drives and moments of silence. At one Florida high school, students gathered around 17 empty desks and released 17 doves for the most recent lives lost in a mass shooting from a military-style weapon. Students in L.A. wore orange to make their presence known. They marched from Newtown, Connecticut, to Parkland, Florida, to Columbine, Colorado. They carried signs including, Are we next? The school superintendent in Maine declared an intermission to accommodate the students' determination to be heard and seen. At some, schools, at some schools, students were being allowed to leave class for a half hour, but only to talk about grief, not guns. A superintendent in Michigan is allowing instead 17 minutes of silence and 17 balloons released for the 14 students and three teachers who died in Parkland last month. The super in Somerset County, Maine, says students who walk out will be marked absent without permission and will be subject to disciplinary action. Not to be outdone, a Texas school superintendent threatened to hand out three-day suspensions. Such discipline could wind up on the students' permanent records, although major universities have already said they will disregard an applicant's punishments for peaceful activism. A school district in Georgia that had taken a hard line softened it to say, okay, you can have your walkout if it's supervised by teachers, and teachers gladly joined those students. Yesterday's walkouts happened every hour at 10 a.m. in the Eastern Time Zone, again at 10 Central and so on to maximize press coverage across the country. Another nationwide protest is planned for March 24th, coinciding with the Young People's March on the nation's capital. Also on that date, a march in the hometown of House Speaker Paul Ryan to urge reforming gun laws. The students will march 54 miles to get there to match the distance marched by civil rights protesters in Alabama in 1965. Student activists have already moved a mountain, if only a little, on the subject of guns. They got Florida's lawmakers and governor to raise to 21 the age limit for all gun purchases and to ban bump stocks and to address school safety, however clumsily. But the Florida plan to arm teachers lost what little luster it had after a teacher in California this week accidentally shot a student. It happened during a gun safety demonstration inside a classroom in the northern California community of Seaside. The teacher, who's also a city councilman and the town's pro tem mayor, had brought his gun to school. That's illegal in California unless you're a sworn law enforcement officer, which this guy also is. He's a reserve city police officer in addition to the other hats he wears. And for all the talk of training teachers, This highly trained officer is also trained in the proficient use of a gun. The bullet or a fragment of it had grazed the neck of a 17-year-old boy. Except for the trauma of that, he'll be okay. Two other students were injured by falling ceiling fragments. The teacher slash cop slash mayor has now been placed on administrative leave from his teaching job. The wounded boy's father no longer supports the idea of teachers with guns. Quoting Furman Gonzalez, I was kind of leaning toward having armed people in school in case something happened. After today, I get why people say there should be no guns in schools. If there's an accident, he says, people could die. That same day in Alexandria, Virginia, a school resource officer accidentally fired his gun in his office. That time no one got hurt. But two weeks ago in Georgia, a teacher was arrested after he'd armed himself and holed up in his classroom, shooting out a window and shooting at the principal. Florida's students had already performed a near miracle, prompting Florida lawmakers to raise that age limit on long gun purchases to 21 to match the already existing limit on handguns. Even Trump questioned the lack of a 21 threshold at one point. But that law and that kind of talk from Trump was the opposite of what the NRA wants. The NRA is accustomed to getting what it wants in the nation's capital and in capitals across the country, including Florida's. So the NRA has filed a class-action suit against its old friend, Florida, calling the age limit an infringement on the Second Amendment. Teenagers have filed lawsuits against Florida, calling the new law discriminatory. An 18-year-old is even suing Dick's Sporting Goods for refusing to sell a long gun to him, claiming it's discrimination based on age and even religion? the NRA is asking a judge to block the new Florida age limit. That may have been all the Trump administration needed to hear. White House spokesman Raj Shah had told reporters just two days earlier the age limit would be in Trump's proposal. But when Trump's school safety proposals were rolled out Sunday night, that age limit, he had mentioned, was nowhere to be found. It had been dropped. Trump explained on Twitter it was all about the court cases. He said he wants to see how the courts rule. Besides, Trump tweeted, there was not much political support for the idea, he says. If he's talking about weak support from Republican lawmakers, NRA money has a lot to do with that. That money can and has crushed campaigns that oppose the gunmaker's lobby. The National Rifle Association, which had donated $30 million to the Trump campaign, was getting what it wants. Trump had publicly promised he would never let the NRA down. The president's proposal sends federal money to train teachers and other school personnel to use guns. It also sets up a commission, a commission to study some kind of see-something, say-something network for reporting armed people on the edge. Even Trump's skeptical of that idea, telling supporters Saturday, we can't just keep setting up committees and they meet and have a meal and talk and talk and talk. The Trump plan does call for improvements in the background check system, but without closing any loopholes. One-third of the nation's gun owners got theirs without a background check because the law doesn't require it when private dealers are involved. The NRA also opposes closing that loophole. Trump's endorsing a bipartisan plan in Congress that involves red flag or protection orders to help police and family members ask a court to take someone's guns and block them from buying more if they're at risk. Nearly half of all mass shooters had previously shown signs they were Armed and dangerous. Also, in the Senate, moves to toughen background checks, at least when it comes to a buyer's criminal record. There are already enough votes in the Senate to pass that bill without a filibuster. The bill's already passed in the House, and its sponsor says Trump will sign it. Congress and the President are backing the funding of school violence prevention programs, but there is very little talk in Washington about the guns themselves, including and especially rapid fire weapons and high-capacity magazines. The kids are talking about it though. It will be on Betsy DeVos and others to implement Trump's school safety program. Trump put DeVos in charge of the nation's public schools even though she had labeled public education a dead end. As was the case in her confirmation hearing, DeVos had trouble answering even the most basic questions in a 60 Minutes interview that aired Sunday night, a clip of which went viral on social media when asked if she had seen the bad schools in her home state of Michigan to try to improve them, DeVos answered, I have not. I have not intentionally visited the schools that are underperforming. Maybe you should, said interviewer Leslie Stahl. Maybe I should, DeVos answered. On another matter, DeVos uttered this gem, quote, I hesitate to talk about all schools in general because schools are made up of individual students attending them. Whatever that means. The White House becomes one big going-away party. Tales of turnover, torture, and nuclear weapons, plus Bob Seska, after this. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very important to shop through that link for either home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use Amazon for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button or my other sponsors. You'll find them on my page at buzzburbank.com. Rex Tillerson has probably sensed, at least since the time he called Trump a moron, that his days were numbered as the nation's secretary of state. He just didn't know what the number was and wanted it to be higher. Asked about it earlier this year when there were rumors Tillerson would resign, he pledged to stay on at least through all of 2018. That pledge turned out to be only good for a couple of months. Last week, Tillerson was on a kind of apology tour, visiting African nations for a little goodwill after Trump's S-hole countries" remark. Reporters followed Tillerson on that tour and at one point asked him about the chances for talks with North Korea. We're a long ways from negotiations, said Tillerson. It wasn't a long way. It was the next day. Once again, Tillerson had misjudged the passing of time. On Friday, Trump announced that he would soon be sitting down with Kim Jong-un to talk nukes. Trump hadn't consulted anyone, especially not his secretary of state. In fact, Trump had again made his top diplomat appear to be out of the loop and foolish. And it wasn't the first time. Trump had undercut Tillerson time and again from day one on everything from climate change to trade policy to Russian interference. It was also on Friday that Tillerson got a call from D.C. indicating the secretary was about to get canned. Tillerson reportedly got a call from White House Chief of Staff John Kelly informing him there would perhaps soon be a presidential tweet about him, Tillerson. It was as if Secretary Tillerson was being given a chance to resign on his own. To the State Department employees traveling with him, the secretary reportedly vowed once again to hang on to his job. But Tillerson cleared his schedule in Africa on Saturday, according to the State Department, because he was not feeling well. He was back at work on Sunday in Kenya, but then decided to cut short his trip, still not feeling well. On Monday, British Prime Minister Theresa May blamed Russia for a recent nerve agent attack in England. Tillerson asked about that as he headed back to Washington. Perhaps feeling at that point he had nothing to lose, Tillerson said the attack, quote, clearly came from Russia. Tillerson called it, quote, a really egregious act and said it would again certainly trigger a response. And once again, Tillerson had miscalculated what Trump's response would be. On Tuesday morning, Tillerson's plane touched down in D.C. and he got another call indicating his time was up. It was John Kelly again, giving Tillerson another chance to quit But Tillerson had decided he wanted to make Trump fire him. It was just a few hours after that that the Washington Post reported that Tillerson was out to be replaced by Mike Pompeo, who has already headed Trump's Homeland Security Department and more recently the CIA. Within a couple of hours after that post report, Trump confirmed it. In a tweet, of course. Trump had just fired a cabinet secretary publicly on Twitter. The president had avoided telling Tillerson face-to-face. According to one of the State Department undersecretaries, Tillerson was, quote, unaware of the reason. Quoting the undersecretary, he had every intention of staying. That official has now been fired as well by the White House. White House reporters were eager for a comment from Trump, who told them he respected Tillerson's intellect, but that, quote, we were not really thinking the same. Trump said he and Mike Pompeo have a similar thought process—perhaps one less intellectual. As with nearly all the recent White House shakeups, Pompeo is even farther to the political right than his predecessor. Another example of this is the new CIA director, Gina Haspel. Trump proudly announced Haspel as the first female CIA director, but there is much more to her story. Haspel worked undercover for Central Intelligence in the year after 9-11. It was Haspel who oversaw the torture of at least two terror suspects, and it was Haspel who helped destroy the videotapes that documented those brutal interrogations at a secret U.S. prison in Thailand. One of the suspects got his head bashed repeatedly and was waterboarded 83 times before they decided he had nothing to contribute. Gina Haspel oversaw that, and now she runs the CIA. Democrats didn't want her elevated to deputy CIA director, as she was when Trump got to town. They certainly don't want her as the CIA director. Neither does Republican and former war prisoner John McCain. Now more than 20 senior officials have left the Trump White House. When we all awoke Tuesday morning, the total body count was 51 51 White House officials had departed their jobs by just over a year into the Trump administration. Tillerson's firing made it 52. The firing of his deputy made it 53. And then a report that Trump's personal assistant in the White House had been escorted off the property for lack of security clearance. Mr. McEntee became the 54th departure, bringing the average to nearly one a week, about the same as on the TV show The Apprentice. There's a reason longtime Trump aide John McEntee couldn't get that clearance. He, too, is under investigation by the Homeland Security Department for serious financial crimes unrelated to any of the alleged corruption by past and present members of Team Trump. If McEntee can avoid prison, he will apparently land on his feet, because despite the criminal allegations, he's already landed a job on the Trump 2020 re-election campaign which is already underway. And the White House continues to churn. It was just five months ago that Trump declared his cabinet was, quote, the finest group of people ever assembled. Rex Tillerson was one of those. So were Housing Secretary Ben Carson and Veteran Secretary David Shulkin, but it appears they are soon out as well. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, after her disastrous appearance on 60 Minutes, appears to be on the chopping block. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt and Interiors Ryan Zinke have reportedly been called into the White House woodshed for their own mini-scandals. Five months after praising them, Trump's reportedly been complaining to insiders that his cabinet has failed to meet his expectations. Other top advisors are rumored to be on the edge of dismissal, including Chief of Staff John Kelly and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Over at Trump's Justice Department, Jeff Sessions is reportedly planning to fire outgoing Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe just before McCabe's planned retirement this weekend. A firing now would strip McCabe of his pension after more than two decades at the FBI. The Trump administration blames McCabe for FBI leaks to the media about its investigation to the Clinton Foundation, even though McCabe was authorized to speak to the media. White House insiders say Trump is feeling more confident than he has in quite a while between the Intelligence Committee's lack of findings on collusion with Russia and his shakeups in the cabinet. As Trump told reporters on the White House lawn, we're getting very close to having the cabinet and other things that I want. In the midst of the Stormy Daniels mess, the Russia probe, the tariffs controversy, the nerve gas incident, the White House turmoil, and the national gun violence discussion, Trump accepted Kim Jong-un's invitation to talk face-to-face as soon as possible. As part of its offer, the Pyongyang government has agreed not to respond when the U.S. and South Korea conduct their upcoming mutual training exercises in the region. Trump immediately accepted that invitation and left it to South Korean officials to explain it to the press in the White House driveway. Trump made the decision without consultation from a dazed White House staff. It was afterward that the White House started adding conditions not offered by North Korea, including that it immediately stop testing missiles and nuclear weapons. After decades of the U.S. and North Korea avoiding one another, its current leaders have agreed to talk. Kim has come forward believing his nuclear weapons have forced the U.S. to the table, forced the U.S. to see North Korea as a world power. Trump has accepted believing his sanctions and the ones already in place, have forced North Korea to the table. Trump hopes to get North Korea to reverse its nuclear weapons development. Analysts say that's extremely unlikely, especially since Kim believes it's his nukes that gave him the recognition craved by him and his father before him. Although anything's possible, Trump's previous efforts at using his art of the deal tactics in diplomacy have failed. The pressure is on for Trump and the U.S. to come out of those talks at least as well off as they were going in. Trump's fellow Republicans are skeptical, especially after seeing the chaotic way Trump has handled all of this so far. They also want tougher conditions for the talks. In the past, the U.S. demanded nuclear concessions before there could even be talks. Republicans felt Obama had been too weak with North Korea. They see this as being even weaker. Quoting a former top aide to Obama, there's nothing more complex than nuclear negotiations. You cannot just approach this like a reality show. At a rally Saturday night, Trump took credit for the curbing of the North Korean threat when South Korea hosted the Winter Olympics, adding, it's a little hard to sell tickets when you think you're going to be nuked. Trump's dictator-style military parade is still set for November 11th at a cost of up to $30 million. But there will be no tanks chewing up the streets that pave the parade route along Pennsylvania Avenue. Trump wanted tanks, but that's off now because of the cost of rebuilding the street that runs by the White House. It would be too great, too time-consuming, and too unpopular among the other people in D.C. who also use that street every day. But Trump still wants to top the Bastille Day parade he witnessed in France, which did feature tanks. Their absence here will now reportedly be made up by an even bigger show of military aircraft at the end of the parade, and there will still be plenty of weapons and marching soldiers as we have so often seen in second world countries, including North Korea. In what sounded like a nod to Philippine dictator Rodrigo Duterte, Trump also said Saturday night he favors the death penalty for drug dealers, or at least life in prison. Trump praised what he called other countries for imposing such penalties and said we should consider them here, admitting, I don't know if this country's ready for it. The Republican Party apparently didn't see what was coming this weekend in Pennsylvania, or maybe it did, spending $10 million in a district it once took for granted. Pennsylvania's 18th district is decidedly conservative, or was. Its recent congressional representatives had won their races by 20% margins or greater. Donald Trump won that district with a 20% margin. But in Pennsylvania's 18th district this week, there was no margin, at first, at least not on election night. The Republican advantage had evaporated, and the congressional race between a Republican and a Democrat ended that night too close to call, with the Democrat holding only a microscopic lead. As the absentee ballots were counted, Republican officials prepared to file papers demanding a recount. But once those final ballots were counted, Democrat Connor Lamb's lead became insurmountable. Lamb had claimed a victory that was his for a host of reasons, from coal jobs to ethics to Trump. But he didn't target Trump in his campaign. Lamb targeted Paul Ryan and the House Speaker's plans for Medicare and Social Security. That a district would flip in solid Trump country gave encouragement to Democrats who say there are 110 more districts in which they believe their chances are even better, improving their chances of taking back control of the United States House of Representatives. Even with their tax changes and a populist president, Republicans suddenly saw what they were really up against in this election year. In the meantime, the party says it still plans to challenge those Pennsylvania results and the Democrats send another representative to Washington. Salon.com's Bob Seska also sees the Pennsylvania election results as a warning to Republicans. Never one to hold back, his commentary
1: this week is a barn burner. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. If you haven't watched Donald Trump's weekend rally in support of apparent loser Pennsylvania's Rick Saccone... Don't bother. Just turn on Fox News and watch it at double speed for a few minutes and you'll get the general idea. Trump's rallies have always sounded like Captain spazzy McMeth mouth doing his best impression of a far-right AM radio belcher by way of a Fox News pundit. This latest rally, however, was more coked up than ever, sounding as if Trump snorted all of the Adderall and washed down the drip with a tanker truck of Red Bull. Frankly, it's amazing his shriveled necrotic heart didn't explode five minutes in. If it had, I'd still be giving it a standing ovation several days later. But his heart didn't explode, and the Sherlocks inside the Republican Party still haven't figured out that there's an enemy within, within the Oval Office. The entire reason why Trump had to travel to the Pennsylvania 18th Saturday night for another of his shrill meets vulgar rallies can be directly correlated with Trump's horrendous behavior. Not to mention his corruption, immorality, misogyny, racism, and his traitorous links to Russia. Indeed, 100% of the reason why Republicans have been losing or coming closer than ever to losing in various special elections is directly due to Trump's obnoxiously unpresidential diarrhea of the mouth, his stream of consciousness motor mouthing, his insatiable thirst for sweet, sweet applause. Thanks to the previous administration, Trump's GOP has had a relatively robust economy on which to run, but Democrats have either won in GOP-dominated districts previously dominated by Trump, Romney, McCain, and Bush 44, or the Democrats have scored substantial and unprecedented vote gains over previous years. Rick Saccone, for example, previously won re-election with 60 to 70% of the vote. Trump won Pennsylvania's 18th district by 20 points in 2016. It's already being seen as the canary in the coal mine for the GOP's prospects in November. Of course, the Republican Party will never wise up about Trump. The party will continue to French kiss this monstrous bag full of monkeys until the bitter end. Meanwhile, Trump seems as if he'll never in a million years wise up either. Don't forget the Trump rule. Trump always makes things worse for Trump. His loudmouth tastelessness is part of his brand now. And being Trump, he'll never abandon his brand as toxic as it is to both his presidency and his party. We can therefore expect many more rallies that do nothing but fluff his dwindling base while horrifying the normals. And it's a small chunk of the normal vote that'd help win these special elections. Instead, Trump instinctively drives away everyone except the diehard MAGA hat faithful. And he can't win a goddamn thing with the racist a-hole vote, even in deep red states and even deeper red districts. The election results speak for themselves there. But it's too late for Trump. He'll never pivot to being more presidential, especially given that his mockery of presidentialness has become a new bit for his rallies. While the damage to the presidency as an institution will take years, perhaps decades, to repair, the damage to the Trump presidency has been indelibly carved into his political gravestone by Trump himself. And even if he suddenly snapped and began to get his shit together, it'd be a futile gesture given the ever-growing menu of crimes, corruption, and cruel whimsy he stacked up since he first descended that garish nouveau riche escalator in Trump Tower to announce his candidacy. Trump has already manufactured his legacy, whether he likes it or not, and it's a Fury roadish hellscape of tragedy and pain. As with the Tea Party before it, the Republican mission to win at all costs has only succeeded in a near-term presidency, but long-term disease and dysfunction. Once again, they've mistaken decibel levels for electoral support. But just because Trump sold thousands of red hats to angry upper middle aged white guys doesn't mean his support among 30% of the voting population will translate into future wins. Instead, and in years to come, Republican leadership will have to swat down Trumpists with the same level of aggravation with which they've had to swat down Tea Partiers in the years after the 2010 midterms. How many Republican leaders will succumb to the coke-fueled grievances and rageaholism of Trump's cosplaying hatchlings? Whatever number you come up with, it's probably low. They've stupidly allowed the orange tail to wag the big red dog, and they'll privately regret it if they haven't already, and I suspect they have. As dangerous and destructive as it is, Trumpism is on life support, but shh, don't tell Paul Ryan and the RNC. At least until after the midterms. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com
0: and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. The Trump administration is again being sued over its immigration policies. The ACLU has filed a class action suit accusing the Trump government of breaking up families seeking asylum in this country. The American Civil Liberties Union had already filed a case accusing the Trump administration of this in the case of a little girl who was taken away from her family in Chicago and placed in a San Diego detention center. The ACLU says things of this sort have happened to hundreds of families, and it has other examples. Mississippi is now facing lawsuits after passing the nation's toughest anti-abortion law. Under that law, Mississippi doctors who perform abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy can be fined and lose their licenses, no exceptions for rape or incest. Democrats say the new law hurts women by forcing them to, quote, have babies they don't want and then to stigmatize the resulting single mothers. The head of a women's health group in Jackson, Mississippi, says she will now be forced to refer patients to clinics in other states, which is why she is filing that lawsuit against the state of Mississippi. Stay tuned. Man over machine, Martin Shkreli gets his comeuppance, Space Force vs. UFOs, and how you can work less this summer in the third and final segment up next. I couldn't begin to count the number of mornings I've awakened on a pillow that was so sweaty I had to throw it in the dryer before I could make the bed, or the restless nights I spent flipping and reshaping a pillow to get cool and dry. Now I wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow because now I sleep on a hollow pillow. The hollow pillow stays cool while giving my head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. Now, A lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses, but still haven't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight, and they don't give you the full night support you need for good posture and good sleep, and you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support, but maybe not quite the right shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe, so it gets hot and gives off chemical gases you probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hollow pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that are eco-friendly, don't give off gases, and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into hollows, pre-shrunken, certified organic, unbleached cotton twill casing all right here in the U.S. Hollow pillows breathe and stay cool, and most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the hollow pillow by removing or adding more holes through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I'm so happy with mine, I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement, and proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to The Nature Conservancy. Hello pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast free shipping. But you can only get that deal by going through hollowpillowcom BBNC. That's hollowpillowcom BBNC. Say hello to a healthy and restful night's sleep and wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this show at HelloPillow.com BBNC. The Trump administration focus on removing government regulation is so keen, it's even removing regulations that entire industries don't want removed. Trump's Agriculture Department has set aside an Obama administration rule that would require meat producers to give free range to organically raised livestock and poultry. It could have further curbed animal cruelty in the meat industry. The Organic Trade Association says, No thanks. Representing nearly 10,000 organic food businesses in this country, the trade group says the Trump Ag Department is irresponsibly ignoring the wishes of both its industry and the buying public. American workers who worry about being replaced by machines could breathe a little relief this week, however temporarily. A California fast food chain called Cali Burger had picked up a burger flipping machine named Flippy. He was laid off after just one day. He couldn't make burgers fast enough, especially after so many people turned out to watch the machine flip them. The management has now decided to retrain its staff to help Flippy work faster. And they've, in the meantime, hung a sign on the machine that reads, Cooking soon. Truth may be stranger than fiction. But it travels faster. A new study of fake news and false claims on Twitter finds what many already knew that the lies spread farther and faster than the truth. And it found that falsehoods perpetrated by humans spread farther and faster than those created by bots. And when bots post fake news, it's humans that spread them. Researchers at MIT studied posts that stated the truth and measured their reach while also watching false posts and measuring their spread. Falsehoods were 70% more likely to be retweeted. In the words of American author Mark Twain, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. Fans of Wu-Tang Clan and human decency rejoiced this week at the news that once-snarky billionaire Martin Shkreli was going to prison for seven years. Skrelly's the guy who jacked the price of a life saving drug to 50 times its price when he'd acquired the rights to it. He also bought a rare recording by the hip hop group Wu Tang Clan, so rare there was only one copy of it. Skrelly said he bought it to keep anyone else from hearing it. Later, he put it up for bid on eBay because he needed the money. Because a week before he was sentenced, he was ordered to surrender that CD along with the rest of his seven and a third million dollars of remaining assets. Throughout his trial, which he had called a witch hunt, Shkreli continued to smirk, ridiculing his prosecutors who were after him for defrauding investors out of 11 million dollars. He also had to give up a Picasso and his share of that pharmaceutical company. In the end, Shkreli stopped smirking. Sporting the beard that he has grown in prison and wearing his prison blues and a brownish undershirt, Shkreli slouched at the sentencing hearing, resting his beard against his chest with his hands folded in his lap. That New Hampshire woman who sued lottery officials demanding her name be kept anonymous has gotten her wish. She gets to keep the $560 million and her privacy after accidentally signing her name on the back of a winning ticket instead of establishing a trust fund first and using its name instead in New Hampshire and some other places state's required to publish the winners' names to keep things uh, transparent and above board, but this prominent New Hampshire woman didn't want to deal with all that comes with lottery fame. She had already accepted her $264 million payout and has donated the first quarter million to Girls Incorporated and several chapters of a program that provides meals for kids, which leaves $14 million for her. The toy box is closed. Toys R Us is hanging it up and closing the rest of its nearly 800 stores across the country. That's going to put about 30,000 people out of work. Bad management, racking up unmanageable debt, and a loss of interest in traditional toys in favor of electronics had a lot to do with the chain's collapse. Toys R Us was the last specialty big-box store chain remaining until this week's announcement. United Airlines is having dog troubles again. This week, a puppy died when a flight attendant made the family put a carry-on bag in the overhead bin, apparently not understanding there was a dog inside. United says storing animals in the overhead compartments is against policy. And a dog that missed its connection in Denver wound up in Tokyo instead of Kansas City. The dogs accidentally got switched by United bag handlers, and now they're being transported back to their owners, at least one of them flying first class. United has apologized again for both mix-ups. Well, here's your weekly Black Panther update. After a month at the top, the movie remains there, thanks to another $41 million in North American ticket sales this past week. Despite that, Wrinkle in Time powered through with an impressive $33 million in second place. For theaters, previews, tickets, and showtimes, please use my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Donald Trump wants a space force. You know, like the Air Force, only in space, the final frontier for war. Speaking to Marines in San Diego, Trump said, Space is a war-fighting domain, just like the land, air, and sea. A space force, said Trump, because we're spending a lot. The timing is interesting, though. Three months ago, the Pentagon declassified a couple of videos that show encounters between Navy fighter jets and UFOs. The videos show objects, white and about 45 feet wide or long, that appear to be far superior to anything in the arsenal of the United States or its allies. They appeared from above 60,000 feet and dipped as low as 50 feet above the surface of the oceans on both coasts. In at least one case, these objects appear to be part of a fleet of identical objects. The videos are evidence of two of the more than one dozen reports by pilots and or radar operators. Three months after the release of those videos, no one is investigating. No one is checking to see if these objects are Russian or Chinese or from someplace much farther away. Even the Pentagon treats them as isolated events rather than as part of a pattern. A former defense official compares it to the lack of coordinated evidence before 9-11. But this former defense intelligence official says nobody wants to be the alien guy. Former Deputy Secretary of Defense Intelligence for both Clinton and George W. says it's time to stop snickering at UFOs. SpaceX's Elon Musk, meanwhile, plans to send a spacecraft to Mars and to have it in space within the next year. Musk told the South by Southwest Tech Festival in Austin this week, we're building the first interplanetary ship right now. Built as another reusable craft, Big Falcon is expected to make short test runs in the early part of next year. Musk hopes to land the ship on Mars in 2022, less than five years from now. That first landing will carry cargo to, as Musk puts it, plant the seeds for a habitable environment where he hopes businesses will flourish. Time finally caught up with Stephen Hawking, but he led it on a chase for more than 50 years. With perhaps the world's greatest mind, Hawking was told at 21 that he had only a year or two to live with Lou Gehrig's disease. He lived 55 years beyond that. He went right to work on a physics PhD at Cambridge and authored a book that made him a mentor for the scientists and science buffs who idolized him. In his wheelchair and with his synthesized voice, Hawking became so popular as a physicist, it landed him roles on Star Trek and The Simpsons. He was known for his sense of humor nearly as much as for his science. He even named his book A Brief History of Time. In it, he used plain English to explain the Big Bang Theory, black holes, and so much more. For his admirers and his family, his time in history was too brief. He survived by three children who remembered him with his own words. It would not be much of a universe if it wasn't home to people you love. In Georgia, five county waste disposal workers sorted through the town's trash trying to keep an eye out for a black bag in a sea of black bags. A woman reported she'd accidentally thrown out some jewelry. $100,000 worth of jewelry. Timing was crucial. The woman had called just before a load of trash was about to be dumped into the landfill, a nine-ton load of trash. The workers say it was sheer luck and timing that they found the woman's jewelry. It was, of course, the last bag they checked. And finally, this summer, you can tell your neighbor why you now only mow your lawn every other week or so. A new study by the U.S. Forest Service shows that pesticide-free lawns that get mowed once a week have very few bees. The study found that the less frequently such a lawn is mowed, the more food-pollinating bees. Without bees, we'd lose apples, pears, peaches, strawberries, onions, cashews, avocados, green beans, celery, cherries, coffee, and dozens of other foods. And the bee population has been dwindling from disease and pesticides and climate change, mowing your lawn less can help save the bees, says the Forest Service. Their study found that a poison-free lawn mowed every two weeks draws more bees. Every three weeks, says the study, draws more kinds of bees. So tell your neighbor that. I'm Buzz Burbank, thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comment.